the Psalm 20, 123 teaches us that we're to look for him for all the things that we need, as the psalmist does in his time of need. We should humbly look to God as a sovereign king, as a sovereign king. Verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now you may notice that the, the, the term king doesn't appear in this text anywhere. But who sits on a throne? God. And, and what type of human sits on a throne? A king. Kings sit on thrones. It's what was intended by this passage. He, he's, not, he's not just saying, oh, someone who happened to take a seat on a throne. He, he's saying, God is your king. God is your king. Lift your eyes to him. Approach him as a servant. God is the divine king on a throne. He's ruling over all creation, over all things that he created. Now, I'm going to confess something to you. I I have trouble at times and have had trouble from young age imaging this. I have, a, I have an undergraduate degree in art, right? And so I'm a picture person. In my head, when you ask me to, when you tell me something, you tell me a story, I picture it. I don't see words that I'm reading. I'm, I'm picturing things. It's, you know, most people are probably that way, but some, some people don't see pictures. I see pictures. And so somebody says, God is your king. And I go, uh, it's just, I, I have trouble seeing it. Not because I don't believe it, but because... I've always had this sort of tainted image of what kings are. The first time, first time I remember hearing about God as king, I believe I was about five years old. I was in a Sunday school class. My, my teacher was Mrs. Thomas, I believe. I don't know why I remember that, but she, was, uh, uh, she had these really thick, dark-rimmed glasses. You know, she was the typical early 70s Sunday school teacher, hair up in a really tight bun, and, and I think she taught second grade or something. But anyway, uh, Mrs., Mrs. Thomas... Um, she read Zechariah 14.9 uh, for, out of our Sunday school lesson. And Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. Now, it's a pretty simple passage. We, we, we recognize the sort of um, what that means now as adults. We look at that and we go, okay, I, I think I get that. Uh, but, but try to imagine how a five-year-old would have imagined that. Even at five years old, I knew the earth was quite large, and unfortunately, the only image that I had of a king in my head came from Looney Tunes, right? Uh, particularly, particularly the, the where's my Hassenpfeffer? Does anybody remember that? Uh, the, the, the king that, he was a rather, he was a rather robust man, and, and he, he, was this, he was angry and yelling and, and sweaty and gross, and he was eating his Hassenpfeffer and munching on it, you know. It just was, it, that was the only image that I could get in my head, and and I'm sure that my teacher explained it better than that. <laughs> I'm sure she, she did a great job. I have no doubt that she did a great job. But I, I didn't hear a word she said because as soon as she said, God, king, I went, Hassenfeffer? You know, and I'm seeing this Hassenfeffer king trying to imagine a God that was so big that he covered the entire earth. I just couldn't help it. Pictured a big behemoth of a man chewing on a... On a, on, a, on a turkey leg, which I later came to realize uh, was, a, was an image out of the old uh, Henry VIII, Shakespeare Henry VIII movie. There, there's actually, you can find it online. Look up King Turkey Leg and you'll see it. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, 
like that's what I pictured. This is big guy chewing on a turkey leg. And that's not what God is like at all. Nothing like that. But to be honest, even today, I struggle with the idea. I totally accept the idea that God is king over all the earth. But none of the images that I have of kings really fit, right? I mean, think about it for a second. Um, King Arthur, Claudius, King Lear, King Theoden, from Lord of the Rings, for you Lord of the Rings fans. Even if you take real kings into account, the real kings with which I I have some familiarity or a reasonable amount of familiarity, um, Henry VIII, he fits the big guy with the turkey leg, right? Uh, King George, not bad. Charles? Uh, please, God, no, tell me you're not like that. <laughs> you know, I, they don't reflect who God is. They don't reflect at all what kind of king God is. What they do is they give us this human image of a king, and humans are flawed. They're broken. Yes, okay, fine, they're, they're, they're you know, uh, they're royals, whatever that means, but they're flawed. They're just like us. They can't fulfill that picture in our minds. They just can't. Psalm 123 indicates that God is something far greater than what we can imagine, far greater than the human images that we have of kings. He's nothing like them. He is only like himself because he only answers to himself. Nothing outside of him created him. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He's, he's, the, he's the beginning of everything. Psalm 123 indicates that God is something greater, and it's an image that's painted throughout the entire Bible. God is is called the King of Kings in in Revelation. He's called the King of Glory in in Psalm 24. He's called the King of Heaven and Earth in, in, um, uh, what is that reference? (laughs) Oh, Daniel. There you you go. He's called uh, the King of Earth in Zechariah, right? He is called a sovereign king. In today's passage, sovereignty, again, is not a word that's actually used in the passage. But historically speaking, when you spoke about a king to Israel, they understood that the king was sovereign. The king had, there was no authority telling him what to do. He was in charge. And so if God is sitting on a throne, he's a king, he is sovereign. And it's a fact that the the Israelites had come to terms with long before that anyway. They had already accepted that truth. In Psalm 115, it um, uh, tells us that, that our God is in the heavens, singing this song. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Why does he do all that he pleases? Because he answers to no one. He's in control. He's in control, not just of himself, but of us. He's in control of all things. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in both heaven and earth. So then, as our king, God does as he pleases. He rules over all things in our lives. He sits on his throne and he says, I love you, I care about you, and your life is in my hands. It's in my control. Nothing that happens is outside his control. He governs everything according to his perfect nature. The author Joni Erickson Tata wrote this in uh, in her book, Is God Really in Control? Nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a setback to his plans. 
Nothing can thwart his purposes, and nothing is beyond his control. His sovereignty is absolute. Everything that happens is uniquely ordained by God. This truth can be really hard to grasp, to understand, to affirm in a, in a positive way, uh, because bad things happen in this world, and, and, and explaining them in light of that is difficult. And we struggle with that. And so we say, oh, is he really in control? Uh, I don't know. But the fact is, is, without God's sovereignty, we have no basis for any sort of confidence or hope in this life. If God is not in control, we can't be sure that he can keep any of his promises. If there's something outside of God's control that can take it away, then that means we could be taken away too. And God couldn't do anything about it. He would not be able to protect us, to care for us, to save us, or anything along those lines. It's only in his sovereignty. It's only in the fact that he rules over all and is in charge of all and cares for all and guides all and protects all. It's only in those facts that we can be sure that the Lord will keep his promises to us. That the promise of the cross is not just some vain attempt to get our attention, but it is actually real and it means something. And it means like a guarantee. If I say I'm going to do this, it is done. I mean, think about it. God doesn't have to, God doesn't have to work to make things happen. If I say I'm going to build a house, I can't just say house, build But God says, let there be light. God speaks and separates the waters from the land, from the sky. God speaks and we are created. God's word is a guarantee to us. It's an affirmation. He is sovereign and what he says is is as good as done. Even if in this world we don't feel it even if in this world we don't always see it. The fact is, is God is sovereign. He is in control. And because he is our sovereign king, then we have to approach him with this humility. We have to approach him in a way that, that, is, that is honorable and respectful and, and, and recognizes who he is. Because as a sovereign king, God is not one to be trifled with. C.S. Lewis in his... Uh, fantasy novel, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, talks about, uh, it's a story about four siblings, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and they enter this magical kingdom. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's just such a great story. Uh, They enter this magical kingdom called Narnia through a wardrobe, which for those of us who don't have an English background, um, a wardrobe is like just a closet that's in a box that sits, yeah, anyway. Maybe that we should just say it that way. They enter it through a closet, right? They enter Narnia through a closet. And um, Narnia was created by Aslan, who is the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. And they find out as soon as they get there that Aslan is sort of MIA. He hasn't been seen in a really long time. Get where this is going. Uh, Aslan's a creator. We haven't seen him in a while, right? Uh, they haven't seen Aslan in a while. Uh, and and they don't. the people of Narnia are concerned because... In his absence, the the evil white witch has taken over, and she's put everybody under this 
curse of no Christmas time and no winter and no, you know, all these terrible, terrible things. And occasionally she likes to turn people into lawn ornaments. And it's just this, uh, it's, it, it's a great story. I, I know for people who aren't fans of fantasy, but it, it's still a great, great story. If you have a short attention span, the movie's okay. So you can watch the movie. Um, uh, so anyway, they meet, these four children uh, meet... Mr. and Mrs. Beaver along the way, and this is a place where animals talk, so you suspend your sense of reality for a little while. Uh, they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they start having this conversation about who Aslan is, right? And this is how the conversation goes. Lucy asks, is he a man? Mrs. Beaver says, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood. Don't you know who the king of the beast, don't you know who the king of the beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Susan then replies, oh, is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, Mrs. Beaver. That you will be, my dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan with their, without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly, Lucy. Then he isn't safe, Mr. Beaver. Safe? Do you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. And he is king. Same can be said of God, right? Safe? Well, yes, in a way. He means the best for us, and he will always do what's best for us. But reverence is due. He's the God who created the universe. I can't imagine standing before him and not having my knees shake, not wanting to maybe run away, except for the sense knowing that he's so good and how much he loves me. He's a sovereign king, and he deserves and needs, and that means we must approach him with this reverence and humility, and at the same time, Psalm 123 tells us that he is also gracious, beyond belief, and that means we can approach him with a confidence as well. We should confidently look to God as our gracious Savior. It's exactly what the psalmist does in the last three verses of this psalm. He expresses, expresses this confidence that, that God will indeed deliver him from trouble. He says, Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. See, the psalmist knows that God is faithful. Sovereign, yes. A little scary, probably but good and gracious and just. He knows that God is faithful to keep his promises. He knows that God will never abandon his people. And thus we too, as God's people today, can trust him in this same way. It's the essence of what our faith means, right? It's the essence of what faith is. Martin Luther said this one time, wrote this one time. Faith is a living, confident trust in God's grace so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times in trusting it. Faith is our confident belief that God will and has indeed saved us from our sins by his grace through Jesus Christ, 
who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved to die, took the consequences of our sin upon himself, and was raised to life so we could be reconciled to God and have life with him. God is not just a sovereign king who has power and authority and control over all things, but he is also a gracious savior who delivers us from things that we can't even see and imagine. As a result, Psalm 123 teaches us to look to him for mercy, for grace, for healing, for forgiveness, for, 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 uh, for, for all the things in our lives, all the things in our hearts that we long for and need most. It's not something that we do well, but it's something that we should do all the time in every single way. Looking back on my life, my work life particularly as a, as a cook, specifically at Bonanza, I realized that I was not the best example of what it means to be a servant. I, I was provoking. I was angry. I was, I was so caught up in myself being right that I didn't recognize a need to demonstrate God's grace. Being a servant of God requires both a humility and a confidence that I totally lacked because the confidence part, it may seem that I was really confident because I was doing my own thing, but the fact is that confidence in yourself is not what God calls us to. Confidence in ourselves is just a matter of arrogance. It's really only when we're confident in Christ and what he's done that we can truly and ultimately surrender ourselves to become the servants of God that he calls us to be. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you that uh, even in our own arrogance, in our own contempt, uh, in our own rebellion against you at times, Lord, that you, you do not abandon us to our sin, you do not abandon us to our uh, going our own direction. But Lord, you continue to pursue us, to pull us back to yourself and remind us of who you are and, and, and who we are called to be before you. Lord, continue to humble our hearts, and yet in our humility, may we never be so afraid to come to you that, that we don't come. But may we always be confident in the fact that our Savior has done the things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Continue to be with us now as we worship you in this place, fill our hearts with gladness for all that you've done, and continue to mold us into the shape of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. We pray all these things in his precious and his holy name. Amen.